Hello everyone and welcome back to a new episode of Thinking Aloud About Film. I'm Jose. I'm Richard. And today we're going to be talking about Arturo Ripstein's Deep Crimson, which is, I think, our eighth Arturo Ripstein film that we've been covering. And I think the more I see, the more of a fan I become. Movie had a series of them earlier in the year, which have unfortunately now all disappeared. But then they added this one a few weeks ago. So, uh, yeah, it's really nice to get the opportunity to see another. I think it's an outright masterpiece. You know, the only film that I think evokes this kind of style for me is Divorce Italian Style, which has Marcello Mastroianni as uh, someone who's trying to kill his wife to divorce her. It's kind of very stylized and black humor. This, this actually is not stylized in the same way. The Italian film, the Pietro film, is almost farcical. This is not quite that, and I thought the achievement of tone is something that I think is extraordinary. I, I mean, I laugh throughout, and then it becomes more and more uh, disturbing. To start off with, you're kind of sympathizing with these two people because they're kind of outsiders, but they yes. just turn into monsters. By the end, it's like terrible, terrible things happen. And I was reading some reviews of it from when it came out, and, and uh, there, were, you know, there were comments about people walking out of the premiere because of the scene near the end. And I think people really objecting to the fact that you're led to either sympathize or possibly laugh at these people. I love films where people walk out. I always uh, suspect that, you know, there are things in the film that either they're taking the wrong way or that they're not appreciating the value of being disturbed by such things. The scene that's prompted walkouts, which is spoiler for the end of the film, is the, the scene with the little girl in, in the bath. That's more the hint of what's going to happen. It's the very idea that a child is killed that's disturbing. And this is based on a true story. It didn't happen quite as as portrayed. It's the same case that The Honeymoon Killers is based on. It's a real case that happened in the United States rather than in Mexico. As bizarre and unlikely the sequence of events was, was shown in the film is, it's actually very, very close to what happened in real life. Where it diverts is the the final couple of killings. But the, the in real life, the, the last two killings were of a mother and daughter. But it doesn't quite happen as as was shown in the film. Tell us the plot. It's, it's The Honeymoon Killers. So if you've seen The Honeymoon Killers, which I actually I haven't, you'll kind of know what's going to happen. Two lead characters. One is, is, is a, a nurse. I guess she's in her 30s. She's a bit overweight. She's working as a home carer. She's got two young kids. And, and she's kind of retreated into this world of romantic fantasy. So she's obsessed with, with the cinema and with fan magazines, and particularly with Charles Boyer, who she... Uh, she kind of writes his initials on her breasts and stuff like this. And so she's looking at Lonely Hearts ads. There's a, there's a guy who she writes to and they meet up, but he, it transpires, is a swindler. So he's bald, he wears a couple, of, he's got a selection of hair pieces. He's meeting lonely single women in order to, to steal their money. The nurse realises this and kind of blackmails him into having a relationship with her, dumps her children at an orphanage, and they agree that they'll get together. She pretends to be his sister so they can go round uh, as a pair, kind of picking up widows and elderly spinsters um, in order to steal their money, But which is, is what that guy's been doing up to that point. But it escalates because the nurse is so jealous of him that she starts killing the, 
the women. The rest of the film is essentially it's a series of sequences where they'll go and befriend a woman who might be the, you know, there's a, there's a drunk widow, there's a, there's a kind of elderly religious widow there's a young widow with a with a young daughter and that you they they deal with this in different ways and each of them basically ends with the the woman being killed or in one case the woman and her daughter being killed in increasingly unpleasant ways i think one of the things that makes this film so interesting is the way that it deals with gender with romance with ideas of romance and longing and i think it's very important to the film's achievements that the screenplay is written by a woman. So her name is uh, Patalicia Garcia Diego. And it's a fantastic uh, screenplay because actually it begins with this kind of female fantasy. Yeah, there's a woman in her bed and she's reading movie magazines and she's reading about Charles Boyer and she's got pictures of Charles Boyer all over her apartment and her idea of romance is what Charles Boyer represents. And that's what leads her to the Lonely Hearts ads and the man she meets, which is a Spaniard in Mexico with all the fantasies of the accent and you know that background uh, in sight in her, which approximates Boyer. It's very important that the film has that woman's point of view on it. Right, because otherwise, I mean, you, one could imagine how one could make a really sexist film about this, right? A man who exploits a woman's feelings to then engage in a whole serial killing of lonely women. It's interesting, isn't it, that, the, that it's the woman who's the, the driving force yes. behind that, Absolutely. behind the killings. I mean, he, he wasn't a killer. I think this isn't the case in real life, you know, that it was a an equal partnership in real life but it's very clear here I, th I think i'm right in saying it's the woman who physically carries out every murder yeah i think so too and you know and they get more and more vicious as the film progresses and the film also deals with stereotypes really so you know you have the fat woman you know who's very insecure about her weight and uh, you know her breath and you know with all the physical then there's the old woman yeah, who gets killed next, and she's afraid that she's losing her looks and so on. And then there's the very religious woman, the woman who lives for God. Yeah, so, you know, who they're gets all... Bludge bludgeoned to death with the figure of Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a statue of the Virgin, oh, but... Oh, that's I right, yeah, wrong. Virgin Mary, yeah. <laughs> uh, And I think that's something that it's important to underline, that it is very, the film is really funny. Part of the reason why it's funny is because I think it turns ideas of romance on its head. Yeah. So, you know, ideas of chastity and faithfulness and promises and, you know, all those tropes of romance. And of course, the thing is that the central couple do enact them. I think the film is very interestingly structured because the moment where he breaks his promise, yeah, that he says, oh, you know, I'll kiss these women. Obviously, I've got to make out with them. You know, we've got to extort them. And I've got to make them fall in love with me, so I'll kiss them, but I'll, you know, but I won't do any more than that. Mm, right? yeah. And then of course he does, yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of in a way halfway through the film or 54 minutes into the film, and it's kind of when the film begins to get darker and darker and darker. Yeah, right? yeah. Until then, it's kind of this black humor. Because the nature of the first couple of murders are kind of slightly comedic. So one, one is. You know, there's somebody's poisoned with rat poison in a martini, and then someone's bludgeoned with the, um, the with the Virgin Mary. But the way she murders the 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 younger woman is essentially the younger woman is pregnant, and because she's a nurse, she 
basically goes to perform an abortion, but she's given her blood thinners in order to, you know, for her to bleed to death. And, and that's kind of, you, you don't actually see a lot of that, but it's kind because it's happening in the next room. But that's re a really, really, really nasty. It's it's just the whole idea is, is very, very, very unpleasant. That's the point where it just starts getting darker and darker. Uh, am I wrong in thinking, though, that actually the man does kill that woman because uh, she is given blood thinners, but then she comes out of the room bloodied and so on and then gets killed on the bed with the child as a witness. That's true, yes, yeah, uh, yeah. So I think that might be the exception uh, to the rule. And of course, it's an, you know, it's an important exception because you know, it's the final murder. It's the one in which there's more at stake for the woman, right? And the woman, in fact, does uh, commit the most heinous act, which is the killing of the child, right? And you can see in a way how the initial one is the woman who gets killed at the end is the structural opposite of her. She's thin, she's beautiful, yeah, she's a widow, yeah, but she's got money coming in, and, and she looks after her child. And then, you know, she ends up committing, like, an act even worse than the one that she committed at the beginning of the film, which is to send her children to an orphanage in the pursuit of love. <laughs> or, you know, this very twisted idea of love. I think it's also important to think about the male character who I didn't recognize, but he is the actor who plays the pedophile priest in Almodovar's Bad Education. Oh, okay. I didn't realize yeah. that. I mean, he's a guy who lives off women. He talks about how he, his father despaired because his father wanted to turn him into a real macho, whereas, you know, he liked sitting with his mother. Uh, and wouldn't he find it funny now that he lives of his, of his sexual prowess? The film raises all these ideas of masculinity, of what it is to be a man, of, you know, conflicting ideas of what it is to be a man. Because, of course, in a way, the only thing he has going for him is his sexual prowess. He can't hold down a job. He can't make money. He can't support a wife or kids. He doesn't know how to fix a car, even though he gets a job fixing them. Right? I thought that was interesting at the end that the women had to teach him how to fix the car. And you see him voicing these romantic ideas of romance, right? of citing Quixote and you know all those things. But actually, all he does is fucking knit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think that's a kind of a marvelously interesting exploration, really. Yeah. Whereas she knows how to do a whole bunch of things and she's a nurse and she certainly knows how to kill. And, you know, there's that incredible moment where he's in despair because actually he he thinks he's lost his looks. Right. He's got he's lost his hair. And he's almost pathological about not being seen without a hairpiece, actually. That's a running motif in the film, isn't it? You know, and she does the sacrifice where she cuts her own hair. Yes. Yeah, to make him a hairpiece, something that she learned to do when she worked in the, at, a, at a funeral home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, that's one of, I mean, not necessarily the hairpiece, but the fact that the, the, the fact that the woman was a nurse who'd worked in a morgue, is true you know that, yeah. that that's in a real case it, it's fascinating that all these all these strange details that you think must be fictitious are actually not <laughs> of course her being a nurse and her being so capable of being a nurse is what enables her then to commit all these crimes uh and she definitely has 
an obsessive and sadistic nature from the very beginning because you see her uh, you know, trying to give an injection to an old man and she's almost like deliberately hurting him as much as possible, right? To the point that the, the old man's sister comes in and says, I want to denounce you to the whole neighborhood. There's that long sequence of her getting ready in the morning and having these romantic fantasies. And then the kids need to go to school and haven't had their breakfast. And she's like, hurry up, you know, I'm going to be late for work. And it's her fault, you know, she's she's spent like two hours doing whatever she's doing. And then later on, you know, they 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 don't get given dinner, so they haven't had anything to eat all day, presumably. Yeah. And, then, and that's even before she meets the guy and abandons them. Yeah. And that whole thing is kind of funny where, you know, the daughter calls her mother fat and she says, I'm fat. Well, there you go. You can go to bed without dinner. Make you... <laughs> I'm trying to think of how the film succeeds in achieving this tone, which I think is is kind of. Like, I won't say unique, because you see it sometimes in Buñuel, yeah, and some of Almodovar's films also have this dark, comic kind of patina. But this is both more romantic in a completely skewed way, yeah, than, than anything I've seen before. And it goes kind of darker and deeper with this black humor, you know, than, than I'm used to seeing. Um, and it's kind of beautiful to look at. So, you know, it has like this really precise mise-en-scene that we're used to watching in Ripstein, the way that the film end, uh, begins, yeah, with the camera coming through the window, you know, and then you see the pictures of Boye and you see her reflection. And yeah, I mean, it is just beautifully, beautifully done. And the camera's always mobile in this and, you know, this fantastical yeah. and way. Also, uh, yeah, everything's red like it always is in Ripstein films that we've seen. Yes, yeah, so. you know, uh, I mean, the last images of this couple, you know, dead with their reflections in the water, and they think, you know, that they're going to be united forever in this true love. Uh, and of course, you know, they're just kind of dead in a field without even having had a trial, right? So there's a kind of a mordant critique on all of these aspects, on, you know, what love is, what relationships are, you know, what kinds of sacrifices or compromises people in a couple are expected to make. Yeah, the film pushes it all to kind of this extreme and, and then loads it all with kind of dimensions of colonialism. I mean, you know, part of what makes him this hot stud is because within this Mexican culture, being Spanish is somehow like, I don't know, being British in American culture, that it lends you, you know, a patina of class and elegance and education. Someone makes that comment that Spanish and Mexico are communists, presumably because this is set in the, the 40s and it's, it's at the point of the Civil War. So. Yeah, I think it's another woman that says that at the very beginning of the film, yeah. You know, I don't like Spaniards, they're all here, they're lazy, they, can't have, they don't have a bank account, they can't find a job, and they're all communists or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the film brings out all of these tensions around those elements, around politics, that, you know, religions, colonialism, you know, and at the center of that is this man who represents romance, but who's actually as insecure as she is. Like, her problem is that she's fat. His problem is he's got no hair, and yet he's making a living getting women to fall in love with him, right? I think it's kind of really beautifully done. You know, it's in keeping with the rest of his films. It's, in terms of the structure of it, it did remind me a bit of The Place Without Limits, the, the one with the, uh, you know, the drag queen in the 
in the brothel. Similarly, that one kind of starts off in this lighthearted, happy tone with everyone having fun in this in this brothel, and then just gradually gets darker and darker. I mean, certainly, the look of it is is similar, and certainly it's, it's kind of he, he's often making films about these groups of people, you know, families or surrogate families, kind of with these very odd worldviews that make perfect sense to them but not to the rest of the world so it's kind of like the castle of purity where where you've got you know the, the guy who's got his reasons for keeping his family in the house and they make perfect sense to him um and, and similarly with this one you know the, the the behavior of the the central couple to themselves it makes perfect sense i think it's the film that i've loved the most and did you begin to recognize certain characteristics because most of the film is just two or three characters within a frame. I think you never see more than four people in a frame until the very last scene where they get shot and you have all these policemen shooting at them. Most of the film is just the two protagonists and their victim, right? And if their victim has a friend, then four. Or like yeah. at the beginning, the protagonist and her two children go visit. Yeah, and you, and you very rarely see anything from anyone else's point of view. There's a very brief scene with the with the young widow and the daughter, but but generally, you know, you're you're not seeing the hunt for these two. You know, you're not you're not seeing the victims talking to other people and being warned about it. You're you're just seeing this couple, and, and as soon as they've dealt with one victim, they just move on, and you you're not shown anything about what happens when they've they've moved on after having either just stolen money or, or killed somebody. They, they, they're just on to the next thing. So the film begins with this fantasy of romance and what Charles Boyer represents and her reading the fan magazines and dreaming of him and writing his name on her breast. It's like, yeah, kind of all of these unfulfilled desires of a kind of a commercially created idea of romance, right? A, you know, an idea of romance created by the movies and the fan magazines and... And then I think it's interesting that the film remains within the space of fantasy, of feeling. Like the world does not intrude into these ideas. So all you see are like a bar called the Intimate Bar, you know, Bar Intimacy, which is actually empty except for them. Yeah. Right? This house in the middle of nowhere, or even the last victim, you know, she's the wife of a mechanic, they ostensibly run a garage. But, you know, you don't see anyone there at all. You know, having all of these spaces empty creates, you know, this idea that it's all taking place psychically, like in a, in a, in a, in a world of uh, a feeling, a, a false feeling, and a world of, you know, an imposed idea of romance. Also, the period, I thought, was interesting because, of course, period is created through clothes and decor and so on. But actually, I thought it was interesting that in this film... All you need is a few things to create the sense of the early 40s, right? Like the cars, right? The fedora, right? Kind of, you know, because so much of it happens in interiors where the furniture doesn't have to be period, right? It just has to be like old. I thought that was kind of interesting because it's both, it seems economical and, and expert. Yeah, that it's kind of coheres. Yeah, in in very interesting ways. I yeah, think. and again, that's similar to a lot of his other films. That it doesn't. I mean, the the others often are just set in one location, like within the Castle of Purity or within the convent. Or this this one's obviously set in multiple locations. It's kind of a road movie. Generally, you just see the inside of the locations, as, as you say, maybe just an establishing shot. 
of the outside and then, then you're immediately inside this empty room. And this idea that you're basically going from room to room rather than from place to place on the roads, from one interior to another, that is meant to be elsewhere, obviously, but nonetheless, you know, that contains these people kind of into these spaces where all of the talk is about romance and is it real? And what is real romance? Are they trying to con you? Or is this really about setting up a relationship and, and getting married, yeah, or forming, forming a couple? Or is it a con, right? So that seems to be kind of like the structuring thing throughout the film. And again, I think the character is central to that because he is a con, but he is a con who also in a certain way believes what he says, or at least up to a point, yeah, because I think there are also elements where, you, you know, he's clearly cheating on her, and he certainly didn't get together with her out of romance. It was a blackmail. So I think the film has, you know, it's so fascinating as to its tone, as to the way that it depicts ideas of romance, the way that it genders them. I mean, that's so interesting. And then the brutality that those ideas occasion and at least from the protagonist's point of view, excuse. Yeah. When they get together, actually, I think his reason is, I mean, it's not romantic. He, she turns up at his house with the two kids, saying, we've come to live with you. And he's like, I can't have your two kids living with me. So she goes and dumps the two kids in the orphanage. And she, she comes back saying, well, I've got rid of the kids now. His reaction, in, rather than doing what anyone else would do, say, you're, you're completely you're insane, go away. He just says, he's, he says, wow. That's the most amazing thing anyone's ever done for me. I know. <laughs> and in a way, that's, I think, what attracts him is that she's willing to do anything in order to be with him. He's moved by her willingness to do anything for him. And she does, because as we said earlier, most of the killings are done by her, sometimes motivated by, you know, the worst feelings, yeah, like such as jealousy. It's interesting that you know, again, that, that, that it's split in that way. Yeah, that kind of, she's the agent of much of this. There's a recurring line where she says, leave it up to me, I'll take care of it, right? And it's yeah. always her <laughs> saying it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Any thoughts on the visuals? Because I thought it was, beautiful is the wrong word, but it's a very precise mise-en-scene. You know, it made me think it's beautiful just because it's so well judged and so expressive and absolutely and i say like his other films it's got this consistent look of you know very interestingly shot and the way people are placed in, in the scene and this kind of constant use of red all over the place it's it's, it's everything's been thought through i think roger ebert's review of it talked about the the opening being very reminiscent of our uh, which I suspect Ripstein's view on that would have been, you know, I've, I've been doing this since 1950. <laughs> yes, and it's not quite accurate. I mean, I can see why people make the comparison to both Almodovar and Buñuel, you know, because Almodovar does have, does turn things on its head, but his humor is camp. As Almodovar gets serious, he, he, he stops doing that. Whereas I would argue, this is a very serious film that does that in, in, in ways that are so disturbing and the kind of disturbance that you don't see in those early Almodovar films, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, and likewise, you know, whereas Buñuel, you know, would has a kind of a dream surreal logic to a lot of the things he shows, 
that makes you question things and brings you know things into mind this is a kind of a more precise mise-en-scene because you know this is like circian in a way yeah like you have this shadow over the door that then opens right like it's it's a different kind of mise-en-scene you could see how Buñuel was an influence. It's less clear to see how Almodovar might have been an influence. Though, of course, part of the reason for mentioning it in this film is that Marisa Paredes, who is in so many of Almodovar's films, is in it. I think it's Arturo Ripstein's greatest film of the ones that we've seen so far. And I would highly recommend it. Do, do see it while it's on Mubi. Uh, we are thinking a lot about film. I'm Jose. I'm Richard. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. All right.